This week, I'm talking with Helena Darwin from Stony Brook University about her work in the sociology of gender and specifically on the development of trans identities. This is episode 32 of Untenure Tracks. started promoting it. This is really great timing, actually. Um, It's with Gender and Society. It's called Challenging the Cisgender Transgender Binary Non-Binary People and the Transgender Label. Uh, So that's a really exciting piece. It's one of the big so what factors of my dissertation, Mm -hmm. interviewing non-binary people about, you know, like, what's it like to be living in a society that's built around the assumption that people are either men or women? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you navigate that? Mm -hmm. What obstacles do you bump up against? And how do you overcome those obstacles? And how does all of this contribute towards the social change that we're seeing all around us? Um, So that's sort of like the bigger context of the research that I've been doing. And I'm in the process of revising the dissertation into a book manuscript right now uh, to try to hopefully finally get a book contract when I um, make the decision to finally graduate, which is coming (laughs) up, but it's been delayed due to health insurance concerns. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, one of the things that I felt like couldn't really wait until a book came out was really getting across the message that it's um, overly simplistic to say that everybody is either cis or trans. Um, and they're, uh, for people who are unfamiliar, cisgender is the word that people have started using um, so that transgender are not the only ones who are being marked. Mm-hmm. And um, so that cisgender people also have to specify positionality, like what it is about our gender in relation to what was assigned to us at birth. So cis is the Latin prefix that means the same side as, whereas trans means you've moved away from. Um, So cis people identify with the same gender that was assigned to them at birth when the doctor saw a penis or vagina and conflated that with gender and declared it's a boy or it's a girl. Mm -hmm. And then trans people, of course, Um, have to go through the journey of saying, actually, you made a mistake and going through all of those obstacles later on. Mm -hmm. So um, some non-binary people do feel very strongly that if you're not cis, you are trans by default, Mm -hmm. and um, that anybody who expresses ambivalence about that has internalized transphobia. But that's just not what I'm seeing when I talk to non-binary people about whether they use the transgender label or not. It's a lot more complicated than that. And instead of dismissing what they're saying as, oh, well, you've internalized transphobia, I think it's important to look at the possibility that this is yet another problematic binary system that we 
have established alongside the binary of man woman mm-hmm. and both of these binary systems are erasing the reality of how messy and complicated gender actually is. Mm-hmm. Like it would be very neat and convenient if we could just sort people into one of these two piles, but that's just not reality. And it's, um, it's invalid to keep on structuring surveys like the census in a way that only lets people choose man or woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds very similar to stuff I remember reading in grad school about the development of a bisexual identity and Mm -hmm. and kind of attacking, maybe not attacking might not be the right verb, but um, just reevaluating that the gay-straight dynamic, right? Yeah, absolutely. And And a lot of the stigma that bisexual people have to deal with of people saying, oh, you're just in denial of being gay, you'll get there, Mm -hmm. or, oh, you're just a straight person who's trying to feel special and Mm -hmm. different, but this is just a phase. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are all the same things that non-binary people have to deal with. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Trans men and trans women rolling their eyes and saying, oh, yeah, well, they're just in denial. They'll get here eventually. Or people being like, no, you're just trying to be a special snowflake, like mm-hmm. just make peace with the fact that you're a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the stories that some of the non-binary, non-binary folks that you talked to had to say, like had for you? Uh, I wind up presenting it as three different categories. Mm-hmm. I have the people who say, yes, I am trans. Mm-hmm. The people who say, no, I'm not trans. And then the people whose answers just can't be neatly sorted into a yes or a no. Mm -hmm. Um, So the people who say, yes, I am trans, seem to be looking at this umbrella understanding of transgender as the final word of what transgender is. Mm -hmm. That, you know, anyone who has any sort of complicated relationship with gender can call themselves trans, according to this understanding Mm -hmm. of what trans means. Um, Hmm. and people who uphold this as like the final word of what trans means do experience some pushback from other people in the transgender community sometimes. Uh, but for political reasons, a lot of times there is definitely a contingent of non-binary people who hold fast to like, no, this is actually what it means. And I am trans. Um, and then people who are saying, no, I'm not trans. Some of them seem to be unsure whether they are so-called trans enough Mm -hmm. to claim the label, but other people just feel like their experience of their gender just isn't the same as what they understand transgender people to go through, that they have not experienced the same types of hardships in society or um, discrimination or just hurdles towards getting you know, health care that they need or whatever, or because they're passing privilege, they um, are taken to be cis in their everyday life, and that's their experience in society. So it would be disingenuous or appropriative of them to say that they're transgender. I mean, there are lots of reasons why people say, no, I'm not trans. That isn't a label that I'm comfortable with, and it doesn't describe my reality. And then, of course, there are all the people who are like, uh, I guess I'm trans-ish or like I'm trans with an asterisk or I'm specifically non-binary trans, but always specify Mm non-binary. 
And, you know, they either do that to qualify their relationship with transgender as being sort of tangential or to head off the type of pushback and gatekeeping Mm -hmm. that some non-binary people experience when they just claim trans without any sort of explanation or qualifier. So you had mentioned that there were political reasons for, for some folks to hold on to certain definitions. I was hoping that you could expound on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so some non-binary trans folk like to claim that hybrid label so that in conversation they can increase awareness and visibility of the fact that there are lots of different ways to be transgender and that there is actually a lot of diversity within this seemingly cohesive umbrella of people that um, actually the umbrella rhetoric a lot of times obscures the diversity that exists among transgender people. And in order to really bring that to light, you do need these hybrid labels and these qualifiers attached to the word transgender when describing yourself. And also that helps you find similarly positioned people under the umbrella. Um, And then, like I said, some people view it to be a political act to just use transgender without qualifiers in order to push back against the notion that trans men and trans women are somehow more legitimately transgender than other trans folk, um, since all of that is also reflecting the influence of this gender binary system where men and women are more legitimate than other folk, Mm -hmm. whether you're trans or cis, as long as you're a man or a woman and feel comfortable being in one of those two categories, you have certain privileges in our society Mm -hmm. that other people do not have who Mm -hmm. refuse to be categorized into one of the two. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I hope that answers your question. (laughs) If I keep talking, I'm just going to repeat myself. No, that's, that's okay. Um, You're doing great. Um, so an interesting thought that I just had, and I'm wondering if you, if this came up at all in your work, um, thinking about the, the sort of the intersecting power dynamics that are at play here and Mm -hmm. how maybe for some trans women, like walking away from that masculine identity that affords them so much power that they may have taken for granted. Like, I'm not, I just, I'm not sure how that process works and like what that experience would be. And how that might play into how people may have different sort of definitions about what their gender identity is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Um, One of the biggest differences that I noticed between the people in my sample who were assigned male at birth (laughs) versus the ones who were assigned female at birth is um, the AMAB people assigned male at birth. Mm -hmm. Um, felt that unless they were really going all out and dressing feminine and um, opening themselves up to all of the vulnerability and danger that comes along with that, Mm -hmm. that they didn't really have a right to claim the transgender label. And um, some of them were shying away from going fully in that direction out of um, workplace and financial concerns uh, that they just were too financially precarious to Mm -hmm. risk getting fired and needed to keep on presenting in a normative way for the time being. Um, Some of them also mentioned how much more expensive it is to acquire a female wardrobe than it is a male wardrobe, especially 
in a place like New York City, where the standards for fashion for women are so high. Um, But a lot of it just came down to the fact that trans women and uh, trans feminine folk are disproportionately murdered and Mm -hmm. in danger in our country Mm -hmm. compared to trans men. And that that comes down to a, a lot of different gendered explanations, like mm-hmm. the fact that masculinity is supposed to be superior to femininity. So rejecting one's own masculinity is sort of an affront to other men who are invested in the notion of masculinity being this all-powerful, desirable thing mm-hmm. and um, elicits that type of violent, violent reaction. But also sometimes it's more sexualized than that and perhaps reflective of some internalized homophobia on behalf of the people who are perpetuating this violence. There, you know, there are lots of different reasons, but, um, but in general, even like cis women are given a freer pass to, uh, experiment with things that are associated with masculinity in our society again, because they're considered superior. And so it's understandable that they would want to try them on. But, you know, like women can wear pants, men can't wear skirts. Mm -hmm. Um, And even in my other research that I do on the craft beer scene, like women can drink beer that's associated with masculinity without having a bunch of shit talked about them. But men can't, you know, like order a girly drink without getting a bunch of taunts. So there are a lot of different ways that we see this manifesting where it's perfectly acceptable for, um, for women or people who are assigned female at birth to, you know, look up to masculinity, but not the other way around. Yeah. And I'm, I'm reminded of conversations that I've had with people on the show in the past, a couple of interviews that I did in the past couple of weeks that haven't come out yet where we taught, we just kind of got out on tangent talking about how sad masculinity is sometimes mm-hmm. and how how it's really heartbreaking like once you especially when you're talking about it with young men um and i'm thinking about like typical college undergrads who right. may have never like guys who are i mean for all intents and purposes still boys right and and talking to them about like some of the sadder parts of it and then seeing this just kind of like realization like dawn on their face about some of the stuff is like really resonating with them and i think that the violence that you're talking about is a really good example of that, right? Like this is something that's so fragile that to see somebody reject it, like the only way to that's allowed that you're allowed to respond to it within the definition of masculinity is to become, you know, the embodiment of masculinity in in your response. Right. And become very violent, which is just like you're separating yourself from that stigmatized feminized mm -hmm. other and reasserting your own masculinity. Yeah hearing it yeah it's and it just like further than contributes to just the overall sadness and toxicity of the picture yeah i agree um i i went to stony brook in order to specialize in masculinity studies Mm -hmm. originally so i'm very familiar and well-versed in all of this (laughs) and i'm actually currently the program director for the center for the study of metamasculinity there what's what's metamasculinity no no not meta the center for the study of men oh 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 I was yeah. going to say, what is, okay. Yeah, um, it sounds like I a very sociological term. Something that people forget <laughs> a lot within the field of masculinity studies is that masculinity is different from men's studies. 
Mm-hmm. Masculinity is something that is available to everyone mm-hmm. and affects everyone and infiltrates our culture, infiltrates everything. It does. It's not attached to a specific body. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you see within transgender studies and within non-binary studies is how people um, experiment and play with femininity and masculinity until they find a balance that feels right to themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think people listening to this are are probably yelling at me right now to have you go back and talk about your craft beer research. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if you. if you wouldn't mind, <laughs> I get interviewed by journalists all the time about that research. It's uh, I mean yeah. I don't get interviewed about non-binary gender. I get interviewed about craft beer. I've been in Playboy. I've been not pictorially. I've been interviewed by Playboy. I've been interviewed by lots of people. About that. Well, if you're if you're tired of talking about it, we can oh, no, we can fine. certainly. I love beer. I you know this is a pet project of mine that is mm-hmm. just sort of for pleasure. So is that how it, it started, just as like uh, a fun thing to do on the side that has kind of turned into something bigger than maybe you anticipated? Kind of. I mean, it was more opportunistic than that. Right mm-hmm. when I entered my PhD program, Nate Chapman and buddies were putting together um, an edited volume that was going to be the first um, social scientific project analyzing craft beer. Mm-hmm. And um, they were putting out a call for chapter contributions, and I realized that I could probably easily figure out a way to collect data um, while waiting for my first semester of grad school to get challenging, since at the very beginning of grad school, everyone's really treating you like a baby and not giving you any sort of challenge and not realizing how excited and eager and hungry you are as somebody who just got through those golden gates and finally made it. But it's this like anticlimactic moment of being really infantilized. So that didn't sit well with me as someone who had already completed a master's degree and like a mother, like (laughs) a grown ass adult. Yeah. I I I remember having a similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For non-traditional students, especially, I think that's a really infuriating semester. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I decided, fuck it. I'm going to go out into bars and just start talking to people and come up with a really simple research design uh, to look at this concept of chick beer Mm -hmm. that everyone on the Internet's talking about. But there's no citation for it if you want to talk about it academically. Mm -hmm. So I'll provide an opportunity for people to cite it and engage with it more intellectually. So I just asked people, like, what words come to your mind when I say masculine beer? What words come to your mind when I say feminine beer? What would you think of a man who ordered and preferred what you just defined as a feminine beer? And then, of course, the opposite also. Uh, And I talked to 96 people in total in four different craft beer bars around New York City and jotted down all of my data in a little notebook while concealing what I was drinking under it. And then at the end, voila, I'm drinking a stout. <laughs> and then it's this very subversive moment. Because, yeah, I mean, like, masculine beer is associated with either, like, working-class masculinity beer is lager mm-hmm. and, like, an anti-elitist lager, something like PBR. And that's why you see that craft beer bars oftentimes have what they sometimes call a shit beer section of their beer menu. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people really enjoy performing that type of masculinity in the public sphere, I guess. 
So there's a role for shit beer still within Mm -hmm. that boys club of the craft beer world. Um, And then stout is also associated with masculinity, which might also have some cultural ties to Guinness and the working class masculinity of Ireland Mm -hmm. and England um, being associated with, you know, mass consumption of dark beer. Uh, And then, of course, the American IPA masculinity, the the dick measuring contest of how many IBU um, units does your beer contain and how how bitter is the beer you're drinking? You know, like your your measurement of manliness directly has to do with how abrasively off putting the taste of your beer is (laughs) to a novice drinker. Mm -hmm. So um, so automatically anything that's sweet or mild or palatable becomes associated with femininity and also with people who are new to the scene. So gateway beer becomes synonymous with chick beer, Mm -hmm. which establishes femininity as culturally illegitimate. So anything that's feminine encoded is also encoded as culturally illegitimate Mm -hmm. and something that people who are new and haven't really been around and haven't cultivated a palate would enjoy. And so that pigeonholes women in a situation where if they just enjoy the beer that's associated as feminine beer, it confirms a marginalizing stereotype about them if they drink it in public in front of people, especially in front of men who they might be working with or whatever. And so women actually get pressured into a much narrower range of acceptable beers to order at a craft beer bar if they want to show that they know their shit about beer Mm -hmm. than men do men are able to basically order whatever they want. And if it's um, a feminine beer, they can defend it as what I'm taking a risk and like demonstrate how secure they are in their masculinity by doing it Mm -hmm. and sort of like dare people to come at them and also show off that as a member of omnivorous culture, they are willing to take those risks and try anything And then there are all these other beers that are considered more masculine and thus also perfectly acceptable for them to order at the bar. So this notion that in the craft beer scene, anyone can drink anything, that it's this omnivorous space and amazingly like, you know, the creativity is expansive. Yes, that's the case for men in the craft beer scene right now. Mm-hmm. But women experience it very differently because we still have to prove ourselves and our legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And yet, of course, at the flip side, if men drink those feminine encoded beers in the wrong space, in the wrong cultural fields, they're held accountable to the more mainstream notion that that's a chick beer and, you know, that you must be gay. So, like, you can't bring it to a Monday night football gathering. You, mm-hmm. you save that for when you're hanging out with like your home brewers association friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I'm having flashbacks to like being at some of the craft beer stores I used to go to and, and just the, uh, like the gamesmanship, I guess is the word. And even just like by myself, like what am I going to drink by myself and still right. having to like think through that? Like, what is it going to say to the cashier? What is it going to say to people in the parking? Like, to stuff like that, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is, is silly. And mm-hmm. 
I'm glad I don't drink anymore. <laughs> well, but what's interesting, I conducted this research right when sour beers were starting to really become a fixture. Mm -hmm. And I think that the rise of sour beers did um, create a niche of legitimacy for fruity beers as not just sweet, but also complex and also possibly abrasive in a way that, again, like reaffirms someone's masculinity. Mm -hmm. The more off-putting the beer you're drinking, the tougher you are or whatever. <laughs> uh, so that's that's been a really interesting thing to witness, and I wish that I had had the opportunity to incorporate that into what I was analyzing, but oh well. Yeah. I mean, you've got... But, I mean, like, it holds across, across consumer cultures. So one of the things I read while um, preparing that research, and I wish I remembered the author's name, was about the coffee scene being similar. Where if you want to show off to, like, coffee snob friends that you know your coffee, mm -hmm. you're ordering black coffee. You are not putting cream and sugar in your coffee. Mm -hmm. That you are not tasting the bean if you do that. And so also, like, stereotypical feminine coffee orders are the frappuccinos with lots of sugar, lots of cream, lots of whatever. And it's no coincidence that, again, black coffee has a bitter taste and mm -hmm. bitter is off-putting you know like evolutionarily we are geared not to actively enjoy the taste of things that are bitter you have mm -hmm. to cultivate an appreciation for them so again being able to appreciate black coffee as a connoisseur demonstrates that you've gotten over that hump that you've been around that you're legitimate and also that you're not scared off you're not feminine you're yeah. not a little girl i wonder if there's something similar happening in um, there's like this subset of, of cooking that is obsessed with spice, like spice mm -hmm. heads, yeah. basically like, like, like developing their own, like insanely hot, hot sauces and yep. stuff like that, where you have to sign a waiver to purchase it. And I, I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if like, there's something similar there too. Absolutely. Yeah. There's actually some literature on that. Yeah. Uh, like the, the performance of masculinity through consuming spicy, peppery, hot mm -hmm. sauce things in public. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also just sort of like a general disregard for health being associated with masculinity, which we see being associated with men's earlier death and just like higher morbidity and mortality rates that they put off going to a doctor for too long because they can tough it out, even though like actually they should not be trying to tough out whatever it is that's going on with them. Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, like salad is considered a feminine order if you're eating out. Whereas, like, getting a burger, getting anything that's fatty with mm -hmm. lots of meat can, like, demonstrate your, again, like, masculine risk-taking, um, lack of regard for the long-term whatever. Mm -hmm. So, like, in all of these different ways, men are pressured to take risks, even in similarly, seemingly trivial ways that actually have this cumulative effect of really harming men yeah. in the run emotionally physically like whatever mm -hmm. yeah and i and now i'm just like thinking about different ways that this this framework can be applied and i like i could see it working with explaining the gatekeeping thing and things like video games and comic books where we know that there's been a lot of like toxic discourse there um mm -hmm. i can see it applying to not participation in sports but like watching sports mm-hmm Right. There are a lot of guys who act as gatekeepers towards like 
football or I mean, especially more violent sports. Mm -hmm. Um, which right there, I mean, it's not really natural for us to want to bash our brains into oatmeal, but like thinking about this in terms of guys being pressured into taking risks, like it's right there, you know? Yep. Um, so could you tell us about your, your dissertation? Sure. It started uh, with an article that I published in 2017 in the journal Symbolic Interaction. Um, And it was for an ethnography course that I was taking. And I wanted to make sure that whatever ethnography I was doing that semester, I would be able to publish at the end, which meant getting around needing to do IRB. So I stumbled upon virtual ethnography as a method that didn't necessarily require IRB approval and decided, okay, I'll experiment with that and try that out so that this isn't just a total waste of my time. Mm -hmm. Again, the infantilization and like total disregard for graduate students' time and like the fact that we should always be mindful of how is this course going to advance my student's CV instead of just throwing away their time. Um, So that was sort of like the background reasoning going on in my head. And one of the things that I had noticed was that even though the sociology of gender was a huge field, that there was nothing written on non-binary people yet. And all over the internet, people were starting to publish articles about, like, this is what they, them, their means as a pronoun. And, you know, like, this is what non-binary gender means. And trying to spread awareness about it in these virtual mediums, and yet academia had not caught up yet. Mm-hmm. So I decided I would go ahead and do a virtual ethnography of some sort of community on the internet dedicated to gender queer non-binary people and i found a community on reddit that was dedicated to that that was open to the public so i was allowed to observe what was going on in there and write about it without Mm -hmm. needing to get irb approval that's that's the catch with any sort of virtual research Mm -hmm. if you have to request access to it you're becoming like a private member and that's a whole different thing. At that point you would have to announce your presence to everyone in the community, mm-hmm. get people to sign consent forms in order to use their stuff, this whole thing. But notionally going into a, an open public internet community is similar to like going into the town square and observing whatever you observe and then writing it up. And with that also like it's, a lot of the different ethical stipulations go out the window. You're allowed to take pictures. You're allowed to write what you want to write. Um, So that's what I did. And I read up an article that was sort of looking at all these different ways that non-binary people bump up against the gender binary as a roadblock and saying like, you know, there is no one way to do non-binary gender or to be non-binary. And that's sort of the point here is that like this emerging gender category has the potential to like throw everything we think we know about gender out the window and make us rethink all of it from scratch because it defies so many of these categories that we're so invested in. Um, And so that article kind of put me on the map a little bit People know my name in the sociology of gender, Mm -hmm. mainly from that virtual ethnography. 
Um, I mean, I'm still a graduate student, but that's been cited about 50 times in the last two years. Mm -hmm. So that if that gives you a sense of how successful it's been. <laughs> but I was also like one of the first people to write about non-binary gender in sociology. Mm -hmm. So as more and more people started to write about it, my piece was one of the only things that had been published on it yet. Yeah. And that's, but it's also one of the more prominent virtual ethnographies that's been published in recent years. So mm -hmm. people who are interested in that method have also found that article really useful, especially because in the method section, I really detail how I'm defending what I'm doing. Again, I wrote it for a methods class. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that section uh, was very thought out and yeah. very well researched. Um, and then, yeah, when I was doing that project, I realized that there was way more going on than I could possibly fit within the span of the term paper slash article. Mm -hmm. And that maybe instead of doing a case study approach to gender policing for my dissertation, which I'd been considering and was going to use my beer research as one chapter that maybe instead I should just do a whole interview series specifically focusing on non-binary gender. So that's what I decided to do. And my other projects that I've been working on just wound up being sort of like random projects on my CV yeah. that apparently make me seem all over the board to hiring committees, but whatever. I think it shows that I'm well-rounded. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have published on masculinity, on femininity, and on non-binary gender, I can do it all. <laughs> yeah, you yourself are, are a... I mean, there's something there about, like, not being narrowly focused on your research while doing research on people who are not narrowly focused, right? Right, right. There's, there's yep. something there. Um, yeah. Why do you think it, it took so long for sociology to become interested in, in non-binary folks? Oh, man. I don't know. It blows my mind. Um... I mean, when I started this research, I felt a little bit conflicted about who am I to be the first person publishing on this? I'm not non-binary. Yeah. And like, is this even my place to be saying anything and also anticipating like being interviewed about non-binary gender mm -hmm. and the politics of being a cis person being interviewed as an expert on that instead of a non-binary person being interviewed as an expert on that. Mm -hmm. So I'm always very careful when I talk about this during interviews, not to presume that I can speak for the community. Oh no, I have been in similar situations. Um, not to this level, but I, in a previous life, I was doing a lot of activism locally um, before my second daughter was born, and I, I also hurt myself, and so I, I couldn't do that type of stuff anymore, hence the podcast <laughs> as a way to occupy my time. But I, I was heavily involved in our local NAACP, um, and when, mm -hmm. I, when I left, I, I lost track of how many committees I was the chair of, um, but I, like, multiple times having to be like, look, I'm not, I'm not letting you put me front and center for this like it, it should not be me so like it sucks but it, i mean you got to do what you got to do right i try really hard to lift up the non-binary people who are doing similar research by citing them whenever i can mm -hmm. anytime people reach out to me for interviews on non-binary gender stuff mm -hmm. i forfeit to the sociologists for trans justice listserv 
and say like, any of you are non-binary and want to talk about this, here's this excellent opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I try to be mindful and I try to do my, my bit, but also one of the things that I've managed to do is create a like jumping off point for non-binary gender studies. So it's that much easier for people to justify and legitimate researching non-binary gender now because they can cite me. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, whatever my positionality is, whoever I am as a person aside, the field is able to grow now. Mm-hmm. And that means that non-binary people who've been wanting to get into a line of research about non-binary gender, but have been worried about whether it would be perceived as too fringe and, you know, whether it would be legitimate or not, are able to, you know, build up and up and up from wherever I started it out. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, just try to be humble about it as a starting off point. Um, but at the same time, I do think that your question about why is it taken sociology so long to care is also linked to why am I struggling so much on the job market as like one of the first people to write about non-binary gender in my field? Yeah. Why does that matter more? Like, yeah. why don't people respect that on hiring committees mm-hmm. and look at that as an asset wanting to hire an expert in non-binary gender? especially while touting all of these alleged inclusivity measures that they're introducing to be more open and welcoming to (laughs) non-binary students, but not valuing what it would mean to have a faculty on staff who can be a mentor for these students and studies it. Uh, So, I mean, obviously the field doesn't quite care Mm -hmm. yet about non-binary gender. Yeah. Wait, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, certainly, we're we're all shocked that there are institutions that do not want to practice what they preach. What? <laughs> oh my I'm god! I'm shocked what? to find out that there's gambling in this establishment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. You you said something about like the fringe aspect of it, and I always find that really interesting because sociology is always at least in my experience has always been pitched as something that doesn't devalue things on the fringe, but then it has over time evolved into a very clicky, very elite, very, very elitist kind of like organization or -hmm. establishment. And it's just so upsetting to me that, you know, of every discipline that's out there, you would think that sociology would be the most aware of power dynamics and how power dynamics affect everything and everybody in it. And yet here we are having, you know, very, very elitist conference that (laughs) most people can get accepted into. And it's a burden for lots of people. I mean, I, I work at a small private school. I'm at a, I teach four classes a semester we have very little money to work with. Like I can't, I can't afford a membership in the ASA, much less go to the conference, you know? Right. And so what does that do for, I mean, I'm lucky I'm tenured. Like what about all the adjuncts or people at community colleges or other grad students? And, you know, it's sad. <laughs> it's really, yeah. it, it's, and this is, and I want to be clear that this is me saying this and not, and not you. This is oh, my, fine. my fine. venting. 
<laughs> about yes. about it. I'm not. I don't want you to get in, in any trouble yeah, or be any more burdened right. on the market. Right. No. I mean, whatever. <laughs> at this point, at this point, you know, with coronavirus and all of the hiring freezes that are starting and snowballing, you know, there are going to be so few jobs on the market this mm -hmm. next fall anyway. I am having to uh, have a very realistic perspective on uh, what's the plan B? What's the plan C? And obviously I hope that having multiple gender and society publications as a graduate student would be enough to get me one of those few jobs. Mm -hmm. But... Like I said, I I don't know if maybe non-binary gender is still considered too out there to people who want a gender specialist. What they actually want is someone mainstream in their minds who's studying, like, the wage gap or, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but but, I, but I, I, um, yeah, there are a lot of politics there, a lot of politics. I, but I'm doing what I love. Yeah, I'm in this to have a happy life. I want to research what I'm passionate about, write stuff that people enjoy reading, and figure out at the end of the day how to keep my anxiety in check and enjoy my life. So yeah. you know, that may or may not be compatible with whatever jobs are on the table this fall. Yeah. And uh, I learned too late in my career about managing my anxiety and enjoying my life. <laughs> um, so good for you for having that conversation with yourself now. Um, oh, I, yeah. I well, I almost died decisions. when I was 15 and a really bad head on collision. Oh, my so gosh. I had this perspective <laughs> for a long time. Of, like, I could die any day. Mm -hmm. Am I prioritizing long term goals over enjoying my daily life? Yeah, And if so, that's a mistake because there's no guarantee I'll live long enough to achieve those long-term goals. Good for you. <laughs> I wanted to say that uh, when you're talking about the wage gap, I, last year I saw a picture taken at the American Historical Association conference. And it was, I think it was in the main lobby of their hotel. And it was a floor to ceiling, multiple column stack of Lincoln biographies. And, hmm. the, and the caption said, Published with the confidence of a new Lincoln biographer. Because <laughs> there are like 700 already. I mean, what nice. what ground has yet to be covered in the life of Abraham Lincoln? But surely there's a, a PhD student right now thinking like, you know what my dissertation is going to be? <laughs> Abe Lincoln. <laughs> um, so I would just tell people when they ask me how I managed to publish as much as I have, given that I do have two small children. I have a very restricted work schedule by necessity. Um, and I've gone through a fair amount of trauma in my graduate program mm -hmm. that I don't have to get into. But again, I went to Stony Brook to study masculinities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have managed to publish a lot regardless. Um, this Gender and Society piece is my eighth article. And I have done it because I follow my bliss. Mm -hmm. And if something is really, really interesting to me and it becomes a passion project, I go all in on it. And I don't listen to anyone who's trying to tell me it's stupid or fringe. I mean, I've managed to bring to publication pieces on body hair, 
on craft beer, <laughs> on Jewish women wearing yarmulkes, like all sorts of things that people think are really weird. Yeah. But there's always a big so what factor if you look hard enough. And I think that's one of the neat things about sociology mm-hmm. is, you know, like you can you can find the kernel of meaning in pretty much anything. Yeah, I mean, I think you could put together a syllabus on a deviant behavior class and it would probably be the most popular course in whatever institution you were in. Right. I would imagine with that publishing background. I mean, what right. what college student thinks they're going to go to class and talk about body hair? Right. <laughs> it's such a in fascinating a, topic. In a, in a soci- oh, yeah. I uh, In my intro classes, I have them do, for extra credit, um, uh, like nor- gender norm violation stuff. And so it started off with um, having having the guys. So they they would paint their fingernails, and I would I would have the guys have their nails painted by um, another student, and then they would have to paint um, some of the the women in classes their nails. Um, but it ended up. I mean, it's fun, right? It's it's very fun to see these you know the the six foot five, three hundred pound football player who suddenly can't use his hands and like the realization that he can't use his hands anymore is fun but the girls complained that there was nothing similarly um uh disruptive for them and so they came up with the idea of stopping shaving their legs and under their arms for extra credit and to see how long they could go and to put themselves into situations where that body hair would be visible and then to come to class and talk about some of the reactions that they they had and so it's it's been very fascinating um, are you familiar with the work that Brianne Foss has done on that exact assignment mm-mm. Uh, Brianne Foss is at Arizona mm-hmm. and she is sort of like the expert on um, basically what you just talked about. So yeah. she has published several articles for journals like Women's Psychological Quarterly and I think she also maybe had one in Gender and Society at one point about um, challenging her students, mm-hmm. her female students to grow out their body hair and men to remove theirs Mm -hmm. and keep a journal about their experiences for extra credit. And then she analyzed their journals Mm -hmm. and also just like their group discussions in class and wrote up several articles Mm -hmm. analyzing like what she gleaned from witnessing their experiences in terms of violating gender norms and, you know, the psychological gymnastics people have to go through. (laughs) I'm laughing because um, I'm, I'm remembering a semester where a student, he was on the wrestling team, and uh, he had the idea, he didn't run this by me, he was going to shave his legs for extra credit, and so he came to class, and he was like, Dr. Wilzak, guess what I did? <laughs> like, what'd you do? And so he's like, I decided I was going to shave my legs and see if you give me extra credit for it, and I fell out of my shower. <laughs> and I'm like, like, what happened? And he said, well... I, I put my leg up and then I grabbed onto the shower rod to balance myself, not realizing what was going to happen. And I fell <laughs> head over feet. <laughs> and he was such a, a funny, uh, just affable, goofy kid. And so the rest of the class is just like looking at him. like, And then he like pulls up the, the legs on his sweatpants to show off his, his legs for everybody. It was great. It was such a funny day. Did he make himself? Did he have some blood? Yeah, yep. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. He's like, well, that shit hurts so much. <laughs> right. Well, one of the 
things that I'm hoping to be in a position to do someday is really sit with um, women's memories of the first time that they shaved as a rite of passage and Mm -hmm. a very bloody rite of passage into having a feminized body. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just like I put out my feelers to see what would come back at me on social media a few years back when I was toying with the idea of doing a whole dissertation on body hair. Um, And I think it was going to be beyond just body hair. I also wanted to do a study looking at men's experience of balding and masculinity across racial categories, across age, um, demographics, etc., and also, um, like, facial hair and also body hair. Mm -hmm. And people, like, people remember... People definitely remember the first time they shaved. Mm -hmm. And a lot of women were bullied into it, like through gender policing, being Mm -hmm. told that they looked like a man and, you know, that they looked ugly. And Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a lot there. Mm -hmm. But sociology is very prudish and doesn't like to hear about body hair. (laughs) It is very prudish. From my experience presenting about it at ASA. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my first year there <laughs> yeah wish i could have seen it <laughs> the crowd being like, what? what are you doing <laughs> yeah i uh i tell my students that i started to lose my hair when i was 19 and mm-hmm. they they look at me just like the guys have like a look of horror and yeah. so i say like look i'm gonna live vicariously through some of you but the rest of you, you better fire it before it quits on you because you don't want to be that kid. You just give it up. Right. Um, and so like, and that's another funny one too, because like you'll see boys reflexively start to like rub their head. Um, uh, who've been thinking about it. Um, so we've well, talked- it's, it's something that women don't experience the same way. Like we don't have to go through the uncertainty and sometimes fear of like, how long is my hair going to hold out? Mm-hmm. And is that the beginning of thinning? Is that a bald spot? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I do sympathize. I have, I have two male children and for all I know, they, you know, may not have a thick hair gene mm-hmm. well into their adulthood. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just hope that they have secure enough sense of self and body image that they're able to roll with it and not be too invested in it. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Right. Um, so we've talked a lot about your research. Um, do you want to talk about your teaching at all? So my experience with teaching is kind of funny right now mm-hmm. because up until now, people have kind of looked down upon the fact that most of my teaching has been online. Okay. And all of a sudden... <laughs> In this change we're witnessing in academia, I think I suddenly have a leg up. You're suddenly a pioneer. Again, you're a pioneer. <laughs> and that, again, has just been circumstantial. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Stony Brook doesn't offer us very many opportunities to teach in person. Really? We have one in-person teaching experience guaranteed to us after we do a teaching practicum our third year. Mm-hmm. And other than that, the only teaching opportunities that are floated our way are online courses during winter or summer term. There is no other opportunity to teach. 
and I am not financially desperate enough to go looking for adjunct positions. Mm -hmm. Like my husband makes good money. I'd rather spend that time writing and researching. Mm -hmm. And so like I've done a lot of online teaching Mm -hmm. just because it's, you know, path of least resistance, whatever. And I've had a lot of success both with the one class that I taught in person after my teaching practicum and these online courses. Um, I think in part because I do have a background in teaching from my uh, psychology degree in undergrad where I focused on cognition and learning differences and thinking, memory and problem solving and stuff. Mm Um, but also that I operate from a place of respect for my students and I don't refer to them as kids Mm -hmm. like so many people do. And I recognize that they are a variety of ages and life experiences, especially at Stony Brook. It's a very multicultural school. Mm -hmm. And when I did teach in person, a lot of my students were first generation, uh, children of immigrants, um, really rich perspectives to contribute to class discussion about cultural norms and experiences in society. So I always make a very big point when I start a class to emphasize positionality as something that I really care about and I'm really interested in and that I want people to really put themselves into their reflections and into their work and feel really secure that what they have to chime in about their experience matters and very well might be reflective of a much larger pattern that has gone unmentioned so far in the discussion. And, you know, not to be shy about that, that Mm -hmm. they are the experts of their own lived experience. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, my students in their reviews always make a point to talk about appreciating that I care about them as people, and not just as seat fillers. And also that I, um, when I'm doing online teaching, I use a modular approach where I'm trying to be really intersectional and each module is a different intersection. So when I teach sociology of religion, mm-hmm. I have race and religion, class and religion, gender and religion, sexuality and religion, politics and religion. And, you know, we go through And I have a collection of different materials in each module that are looking at this intersection in different ways so that, you know, I'm not packaging things up neatly for people. I'm instead showing them how complicated all of these things are, no matter what it is that I'm teaching them. I also did that when I taught sociology of health, all of these different intersections of various um, social locations and health. Mm -hmm. And, I I think that we should have high expectations of students to appreciate the complexity of things. And we should also give them opportunities to demonstrate their expertise to us in a way that's rewarding to them. So, like, I know that not the majority of my students don't have desires to go off to grad school. They and frankly, they shouldn't Mm -hmm. because it's a dead end for a lot of us. (laughs) Yeah. So. I'm not overly concerned with them turning in a research paper at the end of the semester. If they would rather use their time and effort to do some sort of engagement with public sociology and, for example, create like an academic blog series 
where they have a different blog dedicated to each of the intersections that we've talked about. And they're engaging with some sort of current event and hyperlinking to articles discussing that current event and then showing me how they would analyze that through one of the sociological lenses we've been talking about. And then like how their positionality matters in this reflection and where they might be biased and ways that other people might be interpreting it differently than them. You know, like that's excellent. And a series of those winds up being the same length as a research paper in the end, Mm -hmm. just as intellectually rigorous, but Mm -hmm. something that they can share with their friends and family. They can Mm -hmm. share the link. They can not just show off the fruits of their labor, but also really claim the power and authority of their voice Mm -hmm. and of their perspective and know that it matters and that they have something to share with the world and Mm -hmm. that they can continue to do that after the class has ended. Mm -hmm. They can continue to blog about their sociological insights on all of these events. So again, I've gotten really positive feedback from students on that as well. Um, And I think that they just appreciate that I respect them and I'm not looking to waste their time. Mm -hmm. Can I give you an idea for an assignment? Sure. Um, so I teach a class called Contemporary Issues in Crime and Justice, and um, it's mostly a current events course, um, but although since we've have now had to move online, um, we're focusing more on research. But anyway, the, uh, the big assignments in there are to write letters to uh, area legislators. Mm-hmm. Um, and so students will pick um, three issues um, that they want to focus the class on. So my current group um, is very interested in issues surrounding incarceration and mental health. And then we had a, we decided as a group, um, do we want to just focus on Pennsylvania or do we want to focus on the federal systems? And they decided just Pennsylvania. And so they have written letters to the governor, lieutenant governor, and all of our local um, uh, state senator and representative who um, the, our university falls into their jurisdictions. I've never been able to figure out how to say that clearly that's awesome Um, just as a way to do like that political engagement um and i was i'm very proud of them i'm really disappointed that we had to go online because uh in line with this topic we looked up the state's um mental health initiatives on the doc the pennsylvania doc website and it's very outdated and so we should be working on a project to send a letter to our secretary of corrections to say hey we, we noticed that this thing has been um, maybe a little neglected over time. We know you've been very busy, um, and we came up with some some newer resources for families to use. Um, right. I think that's so much more fulfilling for them than just another lit review. Yes. Um, and so, and I also think that, I mean, my undergrad was in political science, and I got away from it because I would like being very frustrated with that type of work. Um, but more and more, I think for our students to understand how sociology is applicable to everything, we need to have them engaged politically. Yeah. And so just an idea. Yeah, <laughs> right. I love that. I absolutely love that. And of course, it's like the scariest time since the McCarthy era yeah. to even hint mm-hmm. at anything political in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so... I've, yeah, I've been very afraid of that. I mean, having tenure, I, I don't have to be as concerned about it. But I mean, I also don't want to show up and I don't want this podcast to show up on some kind of right wing hit piece either. 
So for me, for this assignment specifically, I mean, Pennsylvania has a democratic governor, um, our local reps, the, the representative is a Democrat. The Senator was a Democrat and he just became independent, but he's caucusing with the Republicans. Um, so I said, we're sending stuff to all three, including the Lieutenant governor, because I think Lieutenant governors are pretty underappreciated with this type of stuff and are able, and because they're able to fly under the radar, I think that we as academics might be able to engage with them more. Um, but our, our federal reps, um, we have one, we have a democratic Senator and a Republican Senator and, uh, a democratic Congressman. And so I, I told all of them, like, we're not going to just pick one party. We have to send everything to everybody. Um, we're not doing this politically, you know, I, although I did give them the option of whether they wanted to send anything to the white house. Um, and I framed it as, you know, the further you go up the ladder, the less likely it is that anybody of any real power is going to see it. So especially with the white house or with the, um, attorney general's office, it's going to be read by an intern and scanned into a file and maybe into a database somewhere. Um, the president's not going to read, <laughs> read our letters on, on prison reform. And they, and they understood that. And I, I think they even appreciated, like, even if he would, we don't want to engage, you know, <laughs> why, why invite trouble <laughs> to our campus? So, and this again comes back to just like, respect your students and don't waste their time. Yep figure out what's fulfilling and gratifying to them. They are paying so much money mm-hmm. for the experience of being in your class. Mm-hmm. Like figure out what the paying customer is wanting and be flexible Yeah, and creative. Yeah. And, and what I, I don't think they want right now is uh, like quadruple the workload because people are so worried about being perceived as weak for having to move online. I mean, that's what a lot of my students have said at least is they feel that they are being, they're just under assault from all of the work and all of the new, like additional requirements that some of my colleagues have. And that I've seen other people at other schools doing too. And it just seems so almost ghoulish, honestly, to me. Well, one of, one of the things that I feel very strongly about from my education background is how um, pointless it is to quiz people on memorizing things. Mm-hmm. That, like, I don't remember anything that I made flashcards for back in undergrad. Not a thing. (laughs) Not a thing. I have studied Mm -hmm. multiple languages. I can't speak them. I can't read them. I don't don't remember the terms that Mm I, you know, aced tests for memorizing from psychology. What I remember are the, like, really big aha moments that made me reevaluate something that I thought I knew mm-hmm. or make me realize what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I try to focus on with my teaching. And like it it just seems like such a waste of your students' time and brain power to make them memorize a bunch of stuff to quiz them on as though that's reflecting their knowledge retention from your class and their level of engagement with it. It's not, it's just testing who's good at memorizing things. And it's further marginalizing dyslexic and dysgraphic students and students Mm -hmm. with English as a second language, students who are first generation in college and just don't have great study skills because nobody's ever taught them. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not, 
a good science. And so, like, I understand that in really big class sizes, just the logistics are such that people feel backed against a wall and, like, they have to quiz to see that students did the work. But I would much rather assign students to write me a one-page precy summarizing the main points of the reading that they did that I grade on, like, a check system to, you know, have a measure of accountability that they completed the unit but they're having to think mm-hmm. when they're proving to me that they did it. They're not just memorizing things. And, you know, I may or may not have the time to read them in depth. That's why it's a check system instead mm-hmm. of a letter grade <laughs> system. But, you know, I think that that's on their end a more rewarding experience than memorizing jargon for an online quiz. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, um, cause I know that we're over, over the hour. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experiences teaching some of the non-binary stuff in your classes? Like how do your students react to, to learning about gender as a spectrum for the first time? I think that I am probably privileged as somebody who is not non-binary talking about these things and teaching these things. Um, There have been some studies on how receptive students are to uh, hearing about feminism, depending on what the teacher looks like. Mm -hmm. And that a teacher who looks really butch talking about feminism, people are not going to believe or listen to, or they're just going to feel more combative in response compared to if it's somebody with, like, long flowing hair and lipstick and high heels. And also, of course, that's why, like, white people are supposed to be getting into conversations with fellow white people about racism Mm -hmm. and why racism is harmful. Because, you know, maybe white people will listen to us more than they would listen to a person of color. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that I have had a really successful experience talking to students about gender diversity and the fact that just like we don't know what races people have by looking at them and especially in an online class format looking at someone's name Mm -hmm. you don't know anything about that person without asking them to clarify you don't know their race you or races more likely yeah you don't know their gender or genders you don't know their age you don't know if they are at home with a disability or with kids behind the separating screen, like you don't know anything about them. Mm -hmm. And so just like we need to either not assume or ask for clarification about all these other things, it's the same with gender. And I think that it's actually harder and more dangerous in the online class forum because people are so eager to make assumptions based on the name that's associated with someone in an online class about their gender. Um, so many names do suggest a binary gender and not only is that not the case for people who are non-binary or trans men or trans women in the class who, um, are, you know, still having to use their dead names, but there are also a lot of bureaucratic issues for people with getting the name used at a university changed to reflect the name that they actually use. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there are just so many things that you have to ask people to specify in the online class arena. 
And people aren't going to remember, unfortunately. Like if you have a class size of 50 in an online class, if somebody says, hey, I actually use they, them pronouns, and my name isn't Emily, it's Andrew, please remember that. No one's going to remember. And so like you as the teacher need to really take note and make sure to find opportunities to correct people if and only if that student is okay with you doing that which you have to check with them about Mm -hmm. privately. Um, But they're in a really unfortunate position of being continually and constantly misgendered by their peers and oftentimes by their teachers in this format. And that can be really triggering, especially if they're dealing with other stuff like living at home with transphobic parents during the quarantine. So, you know, there there is a lot of responsibility on online instructors right now Mm -hmm. to try to be on the lookout and figure out ways to even just with small gestures maybe make a huge difference in people's mental health right now. Yeah, I think that's a a very good spot to to leave off here today. So thank you so much, Helena, for taking the time to talk to us today. Sure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.